the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right. Horrific news coming out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, including double mastectomies for 14-year-old girls. Next, we're going to go over the breakdown of the major issue being heard by the Supreme Court right now. That is affirmative action. And then as a little Friday treat, we're going to go over some of the most obnoxious, yet dangerous, in my opinion, TikToks and viral videos from woke people that have come out over the last week. Because you know what? It matters a lot more than you may think. Okay, before we get into the first topic, you've all helped build MyPillow into the incredible company it is today. Now Mike Lindell, inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give back to my listeners. Right now, MyPillow is offering exclusive offers on their bed sheets, their six-piece towel set, and even offering an extended 60-day money-back guarantee. Orders placed now through Christmas, December 25th, will now have an extended money-back guarantee through March 1st. The bed sheets are marked down as low as $29.98, and believe me when I say you will get a great night's sleep in these, you guys. Their six-piece towel set is made with USA cotton, comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths, typically retailing at $89.98, but with code MORGAN, you can get it for $39.98. This is limited supply, so be sure to order now. Call 1-800-738-8374, use promo code MORGAN, or go to MyPillow.com, click the radio listener square, and use promo code MORGAN. Thank you, guys. Okay, first thing we're going to do is talk about this gosh darn news coming out of the gender clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's kind of a word salad. But I saw this post on Twitter, and it says, Dr. Dauschen the co-director of the gender clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, says kids as young as 14 can get double mastectomies and that age is just a number. For infertility issues from cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers that they're giving to children, she explains that some children can already know that they just don't want kids. Let's listen to her. What would be the youngest that you would have referred a patient for either of those surgeries? Um, so for for top surgery, um, we have referred, um, you know, and again, we don't recommend the surgery. This is based on um, over time working with a young person and their family and what decision seems right and developmentally appropriate for them, um, that they would be sometimes receiving um, a letter of support or a referral to a surgeon um, as young as age 14 is probably sometime between 14 and 15 is the youngest. But again, like I said, the majority are happening closer um, to 18, uh, bet- more between 16 to 18. Um, and again, I think it's really important to remember that age is a number. Um, but as an adolescent medicine and developmental specialist, we know that um, where a child is cognitively and socially is more important than that. Um, exact number of their age. Yeah, good. Uh, I want to make sure I understand the the full range here. So puberty blocking drugs uh, followed by the cross-sex hormones. 
it's my understanding they can prevent the full development of the penis and the breast and can even result in loss of fertility. The questions about fertility, these are important ones um, that we discuss with um, patients and families early on and often. Um, so we, we have, certainly have discussions prior to starting puberty blockers and prior to starting uh, gender-affirming hormones, testosterone or estrogen. And, you know, what's interesting is that the field of assisted reproductive technology um, is rapidly evolving, and our understanding of the impacts of these medications on biological fertility are also evolving. Um, you know, I also want to take a step back for a second to say that, um, you know, transgender um, youth in their families, just like everyone else, may... Um, you know, are aware of the fact that there are other ways to build families beyond um, having a child biologically, right, that um, folks can can adopt as well. And many transgender um, children and adolescents are interested in having biological um, children, and many are not um, interested in having children at all or are interested in, um, in adopting. Holy moly. Oh, that's, there's a lot to unpack with this one. Um, I should have taken notes because I have so many thoughts going on. Um, the first thing that really stuck out to me that I just want to address when she says that things are evolving, like what we know about using puberty blockers and sex change hormones on children, it's evolving. It's always evolving. What she means is they are experimenting. <laughs> like I'm laughing out of disgust. What she means by it's evolving, our understanding is evolving Yet they're experimenting on children's bodies and then one by one they're finding out, oh yeah, it does it does uh stop certain parts from growing, it stops certain things in their body from developing, it completely messes with their hormones and can lead to things like cancer and osteoporosis and balding. Oh, and uh, yeah, they're definitely not going to have kids. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, and guess what? And they commit suicide much more often once they go through this surgical or hormonal transition. So I'm glad that things are evolving and they're learning these things one by one. But the problem is it's not like they're experimenting on dead frogs or something in a little lab. No, they are experimenting on the children of America. So that's that's one really key thing that stuck out to me. The next one, I mean, this is like a little personal, you guys, but I don't know about you. I feel like you evolve so much as you get out of high school and then you get into your early 20s and that transition in life and who you are as an individual really happens in that stage transitioning from your early years in your 20s into more of the adulthood and mid-20s and later. Like I'm 25, I'm going to be 26. What what month is it? It's November? Okay, my birthday is December 26 and so like I'm about to be 26 years old. Oh! What is that? What's that called when you're going to be the number age on the number date? I got to look that up. I'm going to be that. Um, so that's me. That's where I'm at in life. And over the years from like 20, 21, 22, 23, oh my gosh, what a freaking mess. I mean, really, I've been super transparent with you guys. I mean, I'm not like blabbing as if this is a diary, but I try and be super transparent about I really did not know what the heck I wanted. I didn't have a solid foundation, certainly in faith, because I just didn't grow up in a very faith-based household. We were very secular. And so I started going to church 
in college. And in my personal life, I didn't make the best decisions because I was not really rooted in, any, in anything. You know what I mean? So I've just formed so much and I'm so thankful for all the experiences. I read this really great quote recently of wisdom is when you're able to look back on really difficult times or hard lessons that you learned and not be super emotional about them. It's when you're able to look at the experience, not be super emotional and frustrated or mad or sad about it, but instead you say, wow, look at this core lesson that I learned. And you aren't emotionally affected, but instead you're you're grateful for that experience in that way, no matter how strange it was. So I really like that. I'm not, <laughs> I mean, how wise is it to call yourself wise? I'm not saying that at all, but I do think this stage of your life is so formative. So one of those things, like I remember when you're growing up, you're seeing all of these different things, right? I grew up thinking, well, all marriages last forever and all families are super sweet. And I had these really idealistic things. I didn't think people lied. I didn't think uh, families could break up. I didn't understand custody battles, all that stuff. Then I grow up and I'm starting to see oh my gosh, people get divorced all the time. There's people that have been married tons of times. There's so many broken families and then that has an impact on the children and then the children carry that with them into their future, into their families, into their children. And it's just a freaking mess. And then on top of that, you have these these forces out there saying women should be boss babes. I totally thought that I was chasing the boss babe thing, right? Like I was going to go to college. I did, but like I was going to be a cool woman with a corporate job, all this stuff. I, I went into the corporate America for like less than a year and I quit within a year because I hated it so much. And I saw the impact it would have on my quality of life and on my ability to have a family. And it was all these different experiences that pushed me one way, then pushed me the other. And the ping-ponging really led me to the path where I am now, where I, I want to embrace my natural roles. I want to fulfill a biblical family um, position as the woman in the family unit. And I'm really passionate about a lot of these things and about freaking fighting those lies that the left will push at you. So one example of that is with kids. Like at first, I just thought, I want one or two kids. I want to have a normal family, live in the suburbs, blah, blah, blah. Who knows, right? I just had a very teenage level understanding of what life was like. I thought that you just did the normal stuff, kept your head down, whatever. Then I moved into, oh wait, I actually really like the idea of having kids and having a property and doing these things. Then the next stage of life, I'm like, oh my gosh, humanity is crazy and I don't think I want kids anymore. I think I'll be fine. You know, I was dating somebody who had kids. I saw a lot of the frustration in the world around me about kids. And I said, you know, maybe it's just not for me. I can't imagine myself like being a mom right now. And I actually, for a few months only, was convinced of like, maybe I'd be okay without kids. And then what do you know? Look at me now. Years later, I am like, Let's have as many children as possible, be fruitful and multiply, and then I think I'm going to become like a foster mom that has a bunch of kids on my ranch homesteading and improving in life instead of being stuck in these government institutions. You know, it's a little crazy. But now, now that I'm 25 turning 26, that's something that I've wanted for years at this point. That's something where I thought of all the options, all the factors. I have such a better understanding of myself, etc., that I feel comfortable saying, yeah, this is really me. And you know what? People change, of course, so who knows what'll be next. But this really feels like the natural thing for me to want now that I just understand myself so much more. So because I know how much I ping-ponged from my teen years into my early 20s, you can imagine how insane it is for me to hear this 
health professional, the co-director of the gender clinic at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, telling people that, hey, age is just a number. And kids understand at a child age, before they're even 18, that they don't want children ever. And so they agree, knowing that there's now infertility issues, they agree to sign up for hormones and sex change surgery and puberty blockers that will lead to them never being able to have kids. If you honestly believe, maybe, I mean, honestly, let me know. Were you guys like me where it's like, at first you didn't really know. Do you want a little family? Do you want a big family? Do you want no kids? Are you going to be the happy, cool, fun aunt that travels and drinks a lot of wine and has a lot of cats? Who knows? The point is, like, we all go through so many changes as humans, then put yourself in the position of being a young person in the trans community where you have all these adults affirming your confusion instead of providing you real help. And while you're in your most confusing years of your life, you're like, uh, I don't think I'd even want kids. Like AOC says we should be scared to have kids anyways because they're going to die of climate apocalypse and the democracy of America is ending according to Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton. So I don't think it's good for me to have kids anyways. Like think of how malleable your mind is at the time. And now you have this health professional saying, well, yeah, it's totally normal for kids to be able to decide that, yeah, they don't want kids. So they're okay with becoming infertile and taking these drugs. I am disgusted by it to say the least. And sorry if that's like a little personal to you, but I I wonder if that's the same. Maybe you guys are the same as me of, you know what? Things changed year after year after year when you're transforming from a child into a young adult and into actual adulthood when you just have such a stronger understanding of what you love in life, what you value in life, what you would like to achieve. And once you have that understanding, it's so much nicer because then you can live with intention and make proper decisions and bring discernment whenever you're making decisions. But I look at my situations in the past and I just laugh. And then I say, what is that core lesson there? And take positive messages, positive moments from each thing. And a lot of that led me to valuing a strong family unit, a lot of kids, a property outside, being rooted in faith as a family, focusing on education. All of these things led to me being who I am now and desiring what I want in my family and in my future. So I am incredibly thankful for that. And I will fight to the death to protect that ability to have changes in what you want and have that kind of fluidity and the ping-ponging back and forth because it leads to you forming your individuality. And these adults are taking that away from these children. I'm going to freak out. Okay, we got to stop before I, I freak out anymore. We're moving on. All right, you guys, this is a really big one. Now, I am highly against affirmative action. So I'll just share it there. You know that I'm going to be biased in this. I'm completely against it. There's multiple angles to this. But right now, the Supreme Court, no matter what, no matter what I believe, they are hearing two cases that could end affirmative action. And I am loving it, okay? I wanted to share some snippets with you because I understand you're probably not like me. You're probably not listening to the live sessions coming out from the Supreme Court where you can hear all the questions back and forth. You can hear both sides, etc. I got you, okay? There's a lot of things going on right now. I understand if this is not exactly something you're listening to 24-7. So I'm going to give you a little breakdown. We've got to start, though, with just the basics. So I got an article from Breitbart for you. It's called Supreme Court Hears Case That Could End Affirmative Action. Came out on October 31st. The Supreme Court's conservative majority signaled that they may be prepared to challenge race-conscious admissions policies, otherwise known as affirmative action, at two major universities. 
The justices began discussing the validity and merits of affirmative action on Monday as they hear a case from Students for Fair Admissions, a longtime opponent of the policy affirmative action. SFFA is what it's called, and it says the organization is asking the court to overturn a 2003 decision, Grutter versus Bollinger, which established a precedent to allow colleges to consider race when admitting students. They claim the policy discriminates against Asian and white students. Conservative justices levied several criticisms of race-conscious policies. Narrow, measurable definitions are often the highest considerations by the court. The 2003 decision indicated that affirmative action should not be necessary indefinitely and would one day be unnecessary. The timeline set out in the decision was 25 years. Justice Amy Coney Barrett questioned whether this suggestion carried any weight. Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked, Are you saying when you're up here and it's 2040, are you still going to be defending it? Like, is this just indefinite? Okay, so what we're seeing here in this first thing that we should address is the fact that they initially advocated for affirmative action, telling us that it was going to just be for a short amount of time in American history. That we would have, for example, the 25 years that would be needed to accept black Americans who maybe didn't have the qualifications of other students that were maybe white or a different race when applying to colleges. They would instead accept more black Americans with lower qualifications but and then reject the white Americans or the Asian Americans or whatever race else that had higher qualifications, higher grade levels, and on a system of merit, deserved to be accepted over the black students because over time, as you gave these opportunities to the black students, they would be able to lift themselves up and be on, in the future, an equal footing with the more successful races in America. That was the whole point, and that it wouldn't need to be a perpetual thing because once you did it long enough, you would be able to have this equality in our nation. But look at us now. Have we ever been more divided? It's really, really sad to see. The bottom line is that this didn't really work, and now you're seeing universities actively accepting people based on race and discriminating against, this is the problem, students of certain races, maybe they should be accepted at a much higher rate, but they certainly aren't, and it's just because of race. It's specifically just because of race is that they're getting denied, and that's a serious problem. Then you can argue like, wait, The whole point of ending race-based discrimination in America is to create equality between all the races. And now you're, what, discriminating against one race just to help out another. What's the point of continuing this practice? Back to the article, it says Clarence Thomas said he has not understood the meaning of the word diversity as it is used to describe student bodies and workplaces. Ryan Park, representing the University of North Carolina, said having a diverse population in the student body reduces groupthink leading to a wider range of ideas formed by a larger variety of experiences. Now, you guys, I would beg to differ here because what the left is talking about with diversity is just based on skin color. It's just based on what you look like physically. They do not care one ounce about what is on the inside, about your character, about your experiences, about your intellect, about the meritocracy of it, and especially about your political views or your views on the world itself. They want groupthink, but they just want all the people in the group to be a bunch of different colors, a bunch of different races, and that's really, really sad. So that's a really good thing. Now, here is the exchange with Clarence Thomas when he's asking for a specific definition of diversity and its benefits. 
I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, it seems to mean everything for everyone. Uh, the, and I'd like you first, you did uh, give some examples in your opening remarks, but I'd like you to give us a specific definition of diversity in the context of the University of North Carolina. And I'd also like you to give us a, uh, a clear idea of exactly uh, what the educational benefits of diversity at the University of North Carolina uh, would be. Yes, Your Honor. So first, we define diversity the way this court has in its court's precedence, which means a broadly diverse set of criteria that extends to all different backgrounds and perspectives and not solely limited to race. And there's a factual finding in this record, PEDAP 113, that there are many different diversity factors that are considered as a greater factor in our admissions process than race. Okay, so as you can see, the guide did not explain how diversity in general helps the educational experience at the school. But what's important here is Justice Clarence Thomas. You guys will see this if you're on Twitter. They're all saying, so how is he a Supreme Court justice if he doesn't know the definition of diversity? What an idiot. And really, really, this is how cheap our political conversations are these days. Because what Justice Clarence Thomas was asking is, I need you to define how you view diversity. What is your definition of diversity, especially arguing this case, so that I can understand where you're coming from? Because what I'm looking at is you you claim you want diversity, but in reality, college campuses just want the people that agree with them politically, and they want people who look differently but think the same. So is that diversity, or does diversity of thought have anything to do with this? It's really important to understand where the other side is coming from. Now, here is the other side to this, okay? We have now arguments in favor of affirmative action being made with the claim that it's basically like reparations, right? And so how do you support the people who are descendants of slavery in America from hundreds of years ago? Now, I'm just going to play it and then we'll discuss. Now, Katanji Brown Jackson is the woman that just got placed on the Supreme Court by Joe Biden. She was asked in her Senate hearings, what is a woman? And she said, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. That was an infamous moment, now an infamous social media viral video. But she has a fascinating exchange and it really puts it into perspective how these people see race in America. And so what I'm worried about is that the rule that you're advocating, um, that in the context of a holistic review process, the university can take into account and value all of the other background and personal characteristics of other applicants, but they can't value race. What I'm worried about is that that seems to me to have the potential of causing more of an equal protection problem than it's actually solving. And the reason why I get to that possible conclusion is thinking about two applicants who would like to have their family backgrounds credited in this applications process, and I'm hoping to get your reaction to this hypothetical. The first applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family has been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, and I would like uh, you to know that I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. 
I now have that opportunity to, to do that, and given my family background, it's important to me that I get to attend this university. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. As an African American, I now have that opportunity, and given my family, family background, it's important to me to attend this university. I want to honor my family legacy by going to this school. Now, as I understand your no-race conscious admissions rule, these two applicants would have a dramatically different opportunity to tell their family stories and to have them count. The first applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution as part of its consideration of whether or not to admit him, while the second one wouldn't be able to because his story is in many ways bound up with his race and with the race of his ancestors. So I want to know, based on how your rule would likely play out in scenarios like that, why excluding consideration of race in a situation in which the person is not saying that his race is something that has uh, impacted him in a negative way, he just wants to have it honored, just like the other person has their personal background family story honored. Why is telling him no not an equal protection violation? See, okay. So my take on this is that it actually doesn't really have any connection to affirmative action because affirmative action is more so looking at lumps of people as just numbers where you're trying to fulfill these desired proportions of accepting each race on a percentage basis. That's a big concern. I hate when the left does this. They put these hypothetical emotional stories here and they try and make an other out of us. And by that, I mean they always try and attack these like poor white guys that <laughs> really haven't done anything to these modern era people, but they act like they are truly slave owners from the South in the 1700s. So what we just saw here was her pin a a black boy against a white boy. The white boy had five generations of his family members attend that college. And yeah, I'm sure that if he sent in an application, he could say, my family has gone here for this many generations. I have worked really hard to get into this. This is my application. Here you go. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. And I also don't find any problem or a situation that could be made from a young black man in America applying to a school and saying, I would be the first generation of my family to go here. I am from a line of a family that originated here in America as slaves, and now we have worked our way to this, and it would be an honor to continue to further my family, starting with growing my career by getting a degree at this school. This is my experience. These are my school grades. This is my merit in my application, and I hope that you will consider me to be a worthy applicant. They're both great stories. Do you see what I mean? It's like both of those are great stories. She had to bring the element of race in. Now, should that boy be rejected just because he included something about him being black in his application? No. 
but it's more so about his character, about his story, about how he's using that as a story of empowerment. There is nothing wrong with that in my eyes, but she is trying to make it seem like, oh, nope, he's trying to redeem his story from being from a family of slaves. And because he brought up race, these evil Republicans don't want to accept anybody that will address race. Whereas the white people can just say that all their families always gone to this college because it's a part of their success, their whiteness. So I think it's really sad because when you talk about why we're against affirmative action, it's because we value people based on their character, based on their merit, based on their experiences, based on their potential in life with the skills that they have and their desire to learn and to work to achieve. Now, we don't look at them and say, oh, you're this race. Well, we've got to accept you or we're going to deny you. Or, oh, you're this race. You're going to be a perpetual victim for the rest of your life. You should join our political movement. And that's really the basis of the argument from the conservative side. It's, it's wrong to discriminate against people based on their skin color. Now, the last thing I want to share with you is I, I don't even know who this is because I just saw the clip and I didn't see the name attached to it. And then I downloaded the clip without checking. I'm sorry, you guys. But this is another exchange from a justice that I wanted to share with you. And it really hits the nail on the head. Justice Alito. I'd like your response to the argument that these racial categories are so broad that any use of them is arbitrary and therefore unconstitutional. So what would you say to, for example, a, uh, a student uh, whose family came from Afghanistan and doesn't get in because a uh, student doesn't get the plus factor that the student would get if the student's family had come from someplace else? So you would say to the student, well, we don't, we don't need you to contribute to a diversity of views at our school because we already have enough Asians. We have a lot of students whose families came from China uh, or other Asian countries. And the student says, well, you don't have anybody like me. I'm from Afghanistan. Wait, what, what similarity does uh, a family background of a person from Afghanistan have with somebody whose family's background is in, let's say, Japan? Wow. Now, I have never really heard this argument made against affirmative action before, but it really blew my socks off. And that is such a good point because I believe it's really wrong to group people together, especially in a, a nasty way. And that's what I see affirmative action as after hearing this perspective. I mean, think of how rude it is to look at someone who looks Asian, like, right? So they have slanty eyes. They may be Chinese, but you say, oh, look at this Korean over there. It's rude to do that to someone, right? Because those are different countries and those are different cultures. So it's kind of weird that a college will look at all of the different Asian countries, for example, and say, well, we don't really care where they're from or anything like that. We just need them to check the box that they're Asian. And then that counts as diversity. Like, I'm sorry, have you heard of the history between China, Korea, and Japan? It's pretty gruesome. There are a lot of issues there. There's a lot of contention between those groups of people, between those nations. And so how respectful is it to look at cultures and say, eh, you're all from the same continent. You'll be fine. It counts as all of the same experience. You'll bring the same level of diversity and add to our conversation of education at this university. Because I would probably say, I think it's fair to assume that if you told this to a Korean person, that they're just the same in the eyes of Americans as Chinese people or Japanese people, they will have a problem with that and vice versa, okay? It's very, very rude when you actually think about how they are grouping these people together just by checking a simple box of a few races. 
kind of sad. So at the end of the day, I wish that I had my book, Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell, with me right now, but I'm on the road and I, I didn't pack it with me. There is an awesome section about the Civil Rights Act and then later affirmative action and how now in America, we basically operate and govern society based on litigation, not legislation from elected representatives. We basically just sue each other to try and win politically and then sue each other again and again and again and then try and get major political decisions decided by the Supreme Court. Now, we often sue each other based on what? Violations of the Civil Rights Act. We say you're discriminating against me based on X, Y, Z. Women do it. uh, People of different races do it. People with different sexualities do it. And now what they're trying to do is add gender identity to the Civil Rights Act so that you can say that people are discriminating against you and violating the Civil Rights Act based on you not using preferred pronouns, for example. If Joe Biden succeeds in adding that to the Civil Rights Act, you could literally get sued, potentially, for not properly using someone's pronouns that they have made up yesterday. So that's why it's very, very concerning, because we already abuse the power in the Civil Rights Act, and now we're going to try and wokeify it a little bit more. I would say that our society really started to go downhill because we created a second constitution, and that's what Age of Entitlement is all about. We are in a second constitution phase. We are no longer what our founders intended. And so if you guys want to read that book, I highly recommend it. My final message is that this is discrimination against students in America based on skin color. That's unacceptable. And second, meritocracy matters. And we need fair competition, fair standards, and a level playing field where the rules are understood if we want to keep a successful and free society in the West. It's simple as that. Okay, now that we've ranted about that one long enough, we'll have to wait and see what the decision is on both of those cases. But we're going to go through some of the videos that just gave me an absolute headache this week. I personally think it's important to track this kind of stuff. You might be like, Morgan, why do you waste your time? I think it's highly important because people that are sheeple like this are going to be dangerous, okay? I I find them highly dangerous because if they're this manipulated about something this stupid, then what are they going to do to defend it? What are they going to do in the future if you don't comply? I see sheeple as dangerous to society. Oh, my, that might be a hot topic for some. Okay, first one, we've got a trans activist online explaining that there's really no boys or girls. Hi, kids. There's no such thing as a boy or a girl, and I can prove it. So gather around the family, the parents, everybody, answer my questions. You either say boys or girls. Who's usually taller? Oh, boys? Okay. But you've met some short boys, right? You've met some tall girls. So usually boys are taller, but not always. Okay. Who likes the color pink? Girls? Okay. Um, But you've met girls who don't like pink. And you met boys who do like pink, so usually girls like pink, but not always. Everything you can think of that makes a boy or makes a girl is usually, but not always. And some of them are not even usually. Where does that leave you? Free. You get to like what you like. You get to be who you are. Okay, by the way, this is a man with hot pink eyeshadow, fake eyelashes, and hot pink lipstick on, and a beard. So notice how he started that with 
hey kids. So, you know, his audience, his intended audience is clear. Um, highly concerning, but it it really, really disturbs me, you guys, to see people online telling kids, they're not just doing it online, but they're doing it in classrooms. They're telling kids who have no understanding of the real world around them, of a basic reality or a basic biology yet, because they're still learning everything from well, what's supposed to be the adults in the room, the people that are showing them how the world works and what society does to maintain itself, etc. Very basic concepts. The adults are lying to the kids. And so imagine the kind of mental impact that has on children. I think it's going to be child abuse over the next decade to see the impact of what happens. Next video, though, here we have somebody saying the gender binary, the, you know, the difference between a man and a woman, that's all just made up mumbo jumbo from white supremacy. The gender binary is a direct result of European colonization. And if we look globally and historically throughout the world and the ways that people have existed and talked about gender, the idea of there only being two genders is a new concept that is directly linked to white supremacy. See, here's the thing. I feel like when we get down in the weeds and try and debate with these people, they win because they have just legitimized their side as an actual potential political argument. My dog started barking in the background, but we're going to keep going. I can't stop just for them. The show must go on, ladies. What concerns me is like I don't think that we should even be trying to change these people's minds. We just need to stop them from indoctrinating any more Americans, specifically the students and the young children in schools. The more that serious, sane adults like us look at these people and say, no, no, never. And then we focus on children and the raising of our kids on the next generation, on young adults who are in college. And then, of course, the adults who might also be mentally weak and fall for this crap, the more we're going to succeed because that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to win generationally. And I think we will if we just avoid getting in the weeds with these crazy lunatics. All right. That being said, I hope you guys have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.